All right. Well, let's dive in. Hebrews chapter number six, if you will. Uh, Great chapter, great passage. Uh, We took time to establish the meaning of the first, I think it's seven verses, uh, first six verses. And we're going to go back and walk through some of that again. Um, Let me say this about the book of Hebrews, and I am learning so much as I'm going. Uh, It's a tremendous book. It's a bit of a difficult book, as we've talked about, and that's not meant irreverently. Uh, It's just written to a different people with a very different understanding than you and I, Gentile, 21st century Christians would understand. Uh, And so it just takes a little bit of work uh, to grasp some of the references, and some of the um, and some of the references are very, very vague. Okay, and so there, that's that. You can make a vague reference to something when your audience gets it; they understand all the background that you're inferring and insinuating as you make the vague reference. Uh, We have to be students and go back um, uh, and check on those things. So that's important to do. Um, Let me introduce, and I debated whether or not to do this. Well, let me say what I'm going to say, and then I'll introduce that. The book of Hebrews is built um, line upon line, okay, Uh, chapter by chapter. Um, We've already seen that it's imperative that we unfolded the first few chapters to unfold the next few chapters. And uh, most books are that way to one degree or another, but I would submit that probably the book of Hebrews um, is maybe the most that way. That if you dropped into Hebrews chapter 7, uh, there'd be references and words that are used um, that you would need to have already defined and seen um, to be able to understand it and interpret it properly in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 if you didn't get through some of those. And, and hold that thought because I'm going to show that to you today as we go and study each of the maybe individual key words of verses 4, 5, and 6. And so just be mindful of that. Um, let, me, let me submit to you as a student a couple of things. There's two, there's a couple types of theology, um, and they're not bad. Uh, they're all good. There's biblical theology and systematic theology. And those are terms you might be vaguely familiar with. Let me kind of give you kind of the breakdown of it. A biblical theology, and they're both good. They both harmonize with each other. But biblical theology is what we're trying to establish through our study. Uh, we're walking through the author's words and intent and history and audience, and we're letting the Bible establish theology for us. Then there's systematic theology, and this is all correct as well. Systematic theology is where we get terms like eschatology. And so there's a system of beliefs about eschatology or the study of end times. And with that, that, that system of belief, we go back into texts of scripture like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we mine out uh, from its context things that teach about this system of theology. And that's great. That's very, very good. But sometimes what happens is when you approach a book like the book of Hebrews, if you approach it from a systematic setting, you're going to miss the theology actually being taught in the, the, the line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book. And so example for that is, is absolutely chapter number six. Chapter number six is one of those things that from a systematic theology standpoint, you can end up with the wrong interpretation. So we're going to read chapter number six, the first couple of verses in a minute. But for those who were with us last week, we saw that the author is submitting that, hey, if you have been enlightened, if you have been made a partaker of the Holy Ghost, if you have, you know, uh, made a partaker of the the, the world to come and the power of, of the kingdom that's to come and a partaker of heaven, that if you fall away, it's impossible to re-crucify Jesus and get re-saved again. Now, b- biblical theology is going to teach you that that is talking about the fact that you can't re-crucify Jesus, but it's impossible to get re-saved because you can't be unsaved. You never lost what you have. Uh, now, that, and, and the, the text is going to teach us that, and I'm going to show you in a minute what, what I mean. But over here, if you approach it from a different standpoint or a different set theologies, and you jump into chapter 6, and you're like, hey, this is talking about perseverance of the saints. It fits into this system of belief. Well, now you've taken it out of chapter 5. 
and you've taken it away from chapter 7, and you took it away from chapter 4. Um, you have to leave it in its context, and that's kind of another way of saying, um, again, systematic theology is not bad. It's very, very good, especially if you want to study the end times, or you want to study, you know, what is the systematic belief of, of church or uh, of salvation, and you're going you're gonna to bring all those verses across the biblical landscape into one system of belief, and that's good. That's not bad. The problem is sometimes you can get to a hard chapter like this and say, well, well, let's approach it from a systematic view. And that's just not the right way to do it. You want to let the Bible teach what the Bible is trying to teach and then figure out what system does it fit in over there instead of developing a system, coming back and saying, well, what can I, what can I take and put in my, in my box, if you will? And so uh, if that doesn't make sense to you, hold on. I'll try to develop that a little bit more when we get to verses 4, 5, and 6. Okay. So verses 1, 2, and 3 are really simple. Um, the author in chapter number 5 has already laid some good groundwork. We don't have to go back and look at that. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. So in chapter 5, he talked about what time you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again, the very basic principles. And now in chapter 6, he's like, hey, okay, it's time to leave those basic doctrines of Christ. Now, understand, he's not saying we should abandon the doctrines of Christ at all. But he is saying it's time to leave those, those infant level things. It's time to grasp it and move on. That was kind of what we called chapter 5. Let's grasp it and go on. So chapter 6 verse 1, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. Now they're packed in our bag. We're leaving with them, but let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God uh, and of, uh, of the doctrines of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, of the eternal judgment. So that all fits together. That's why I just kept reading. But he just said, let us, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of, and then he lists a handful of doctrines. So he says, we, don't, we shouldn't have to keep going back, Hebrews, the author speaking to the Jews. We shouldn't have to keep going back and lay again all the way over how you get saved and how, how you get baptized and the fact that the law is no longer needed and that it was fulfilled in Christ. And uh, we ought to not have to go back and relay the foundation of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Verse number three, he says, this we will do if God permit. He's saying, we're going to go on if you'll let us. If God permits and you'll, you'll stay with us, we're going to move on into perfection. Uh, God has a whole bunch of things he wants to teach you. And he said it in the previous chapter. He says, I've got a whole bunch of things I want to teach you, but you're hard of hearing. Uh, and if you'll just pay attention and grasp those fundamental things, these doctrines of Christ and baptism and, and repentance and judgment and, and so forth, let's move on, grasp them and let's go. There's more growth to be had. Now, pay attention because again, the, the style of the author is, is, uh, is different. What he's going to do is verses 4, 5, and 6, he's going to teach us something really important. But in verse 7, and I'm going to tell you this ahead of time, I'm kind of cherry picking, I'm, I'm uh, foreshadowing. In verse 7, he's going to make a reference back to verses 1 through 3. Okay, because by the time you get to verse 7, it seems like, what just happened? What, what does that have anything to do with anything? So it's almost a parenthetical moment, verses 4, 5, and 6, where he's teaching us about eternal security. Now, as I mentioned, some people will use verses 4, 5, and 6 to talk about how you can lose your salvation. And if you ever lose your salvation, then you can't ever be saved. That's not what biblical theology is teaching us. As we're walking through, it's teaching us some very clear things. So let me just read verses 4, 5, and 6 for you, and then we'll give you the, the brief interpretation of it. We spent a lot of time on it last week, so I won't spend a bunch on it this week. But verses 4 and 5 and 6 says this, for it is impossible for those who were once, and he's going to list a bunch of things, okay? Here's, here's the people uh, that, that uh, are, it's impossible for them to fall away and get re-saved. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened 
and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. That's three things in verse 4. And have number, number 4 in verse 5, and have tasted of the good works of God. Number, and this is the fifth one, and the power of the world to come. It, verse 6, so it's impossible if they, the people we just referenced, shall fall away. It's impossible for them to renew them again unto repentance. It's impossible for them to turn to Christ again, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So if you go from a systematic theology standpoint and you believe you can lose your salvation, well, this is a great verse to put in that bucket. But that's not what the Bible's teaching us here. Not at all. Uh, he's saying that, hey, if you've been saved and you've tasted of these things, now there's some people who would say, well, let's not talk about saved people. I'm going to go back. I'm going I'm to unpack words for you. And we're going to go through those definitions. And I think you're going to see from the, from the biblical theology in the book of Hebrews, we're going to go and find these words inside of the book of Hebrews. And you're going to see these words are references almost exclusively, if not exclusively, to save people. So in my estimation, and from what a biblical theology I think would give us, it's saved people, and he says these saved people, it's impossible if they should fall away. And we define that phrase or that word, fall away. It never is used, it's used 57 times in the New Testament. It is never used as a reference to apostasy or a denial of who Jesus is or a denial of the record of Christ. And every time the word fall away is used, it's talking about backsliding. There are plenty of instances in the New Testament where the word fall away is used of a Christian and someone who just falls into sin or uh, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. And so same words in those same uh, verses there. So he's saying it's impossible if you're saved and you fall away and you fall into sin, you can't get re-saved because that would require you re-crucifying Jesus. And that cannot be done because there's no more sacrifice for sin. That's the book of Hebrews in, in Hebrews chapter 10. There remaineth yet no more sacrifice for sin. So he isn't saying, hey, if you fall away as a saved person, you can't ever come back. He's saying you can't ever get re-saved. Because like my son, if he should go astray and come back, there's no method by which my son could enter back into the womb and be reborn because he's, he's still in my family. Yeah, it would, be, it would be an open shame to re-crucify Jesus to bring that person back into salvation. So now let's go through and let's unpack each of these verses just briefly. Um, and really, we've already unpacked them. We've already got the definition. Now let's start comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, verse number four. It says, it is impossible for those who were once, and the word there is enlightened, okay? Um, I want to dive into that word. Now, keep your Bible absolutely in the book of Hebrews, but for just a moment, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 17, if you would. Now, stay in Hebrews because we're coming right back. But Ephesians chapter number 1, verse 17, let's, let's dive into this word, <coughs> excuse me, enlightened. The word enlightened means to be illuminated or to receive light, okay? Um, so just like if you were in the dark, you'd turn on a flashlight, your path would be enlightened. But this isn't talking about outward enlightenment. This isn't about like, because any lost person could read the book of uh, Proverbs and have wisdom. The, the lamp could be a light under their feet too. They could navigate this world through biblical principles and still be completely lost. This is talking about receiving enlightenment, not having a lighted path, but rather receiving this light coming to them. So let's, let's look at the biblical use of the word enlightened. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom... And revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, is that something God gives to saved people or lost people? Saved people. Verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being, what's the word? Enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of glory of his inheritance in the, oh, their last word there, saints. 
So the use of the word enlightened, inward light, is something that's used to define a Christian. Now, comparing Scripture with Scripture is a safe way to make sure you're staying within proper theology. But let me say this. Comparing Scripture, I'll say it this way. Comparing Hebrews with Hebrews is your best bet. Should you be able to do that? Should you ever come to a word in a book where you don't know the definition? Well, let's ask the same author how else he used that same word. Um, And so inside of the same book, we're going to find the same word, and we're going to see who it's referencing. Would you go to Hebrews chapter number 10 in uh, verse number 32? Chapter number 10 is a challenge to Christians to hold strong their confidence. And uh, we've seen some of that theme, I think, in chapter number 1, where he's talking about holding fast to the confidence and holding fast to the beginning of your confidence. I think that was chapter 1, maybe chapter Chapter 2. But again, the author is going to use the same word in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, it's the exact same Greek word, after that ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Now, I don't have time to develop all the context, but I, I will say this. He's speaking to Christians there. And that, hey, you got saved, and then, man, war began. And that's just true. We were talking about that this morning. Once you, once you start following Jesus, Satan's going to show up and come after you, and he's going to try to mess everything up. You know what the Bible says about Satan? He's come forth except uh, not for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's Satan's goal. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill uh, everything around you, and he wants to destroy that. So here in verse number four, for it is impossible for those who were first kind of uh, um, adjective used about these people is they're enlightened. The next one in verse number four, go back to Hebrews chapter six, if you would, verse number four, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, again, we come to a word that matters. Um, This word tasted means to eat, to savor, to partake, and to enjoy. Um, now, again, and I've read commentaries on this. Uh, some people will say, well, this is those who just put it in their mouth. They tasted it, but did not fully partake in it. Well, I, to that, I would submit you search through the rest of Scripture. In no other passage in Scripture is the word tasted ever a reference to simply handling, but not consuming. Every time the word is t- used, tasted, it's always someone who consumes something. And so this person in chapter four or chapter 6, verse 4 says, have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, what's heavenly gift? Well, that's eternal life, right? Um, now let's compare Hebrews with Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9. We're going to see the word tasted again. How did the author use this same word in other, play, in other passages? Because we want the author to put a commentary on this book. Now, I'm, I'm all for commentaries. I read... Man, I read lots and lots of commentary and study and so forth. I think it's good. Uh, A commentary, now there's bad commentaries. Again, nothing written outside of this book is infallible, right? You're going to read a commentary and a commentator. There are plenty of lost people who write commentaries on the Bible, okay? There are plenty of heretics who write commentaries on the Bible, okay? You ever watch the History Channel, right? I mean, they're given commentary on the Bible. And uh, those are are always fun. I actually have a slight hobby, side hustle. I watch those and really, like, my wife's like, why do we watch these? You just get mad about it. And it's true. I just want to know what they're saying. I want to hear the the crazy theories people have. I wouldn't submit, if you're a brand new Christian, don't watch that, okay? Um, If you're, if you're like somewhat spiritually mature and know your theology, like those are, those are kind of entertaining to watch. Um, But anyway, we want, we want commentary from the origin, from the author. So Hebrews chapter two, we're going after this word uh, tasted, Hebrews 2, 9. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should... What's the word? Death for every man. You see, what Jesus did was he kind of he put death in his mouth, but he didn't really die. Well, that's flat heresy. Okay, we all, we all recognize that. So the author uses the same word to talk about someone who fully received death. 
He didn't just handle it with his mouth. He didn't just put it on his tongue and then spit it back out. He fully consumed death. He, he became uh, sin for us, and he totally died. And so this verse is certainly not implying that Christ brushed up against death, but didn't fully uh, partake in it. we got to compare Scripture with Scripture, and again, Hebrews with Hebrews is the best you can get. So enlightened is someone who's received illuminating light inward. Tasted is someone who's received the, the gift of heaven. Keep reading verse number four. And we're made, here's the word, partakers. Now, we studied that a couple weeks ago. That's that coin family of words, right? And uh, one who takes a part, one who holds a seat, one who holds a share in the whole. So we were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, again, some would submit that this merely is a handling of him, but not a stakeholder in him, not a seat holder in the Holy Spirit. But they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, this one is the easiest one to actually handle. Uh, Go to Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 14. We're going to compare Hebrews with Hebrews. How else did the author use this idea of being a partaker? Because again, in verse number four, it's talking about those who've been enlightened, those who've tasted of the, the, the uh, 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 what was it, tasted of the boo, 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 heavenly gift. Ver, the rest of verse number four, partakers of the Holy Ghost. So is this someone who handled the Holy Ghost or someone who owned a share at that table? Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. For as much then as the children, now you might recognize the verse, talking about Hebrews, Um, The Jews, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he says, hey, they're of the bloodline. He, Jesus, also himself, likewise, took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil. So if this word partaker means to handle but not fully embrace then let's, let's bring that back into Hebrews 2.14, that Jesus only handled being a human, but not, he was not fully human. Well, that's heresy, right? He fully was man, and he fully was God, right? And so partaking isn't some like, you know, toe in the water, but not fully receiving. No, partaking seems very clearly to be someone who had a share uh, in the hold, someone who had a seat at the table. Jump to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to see that word partake again used. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren. Now, is that saved or lost people? Partakers of the heavenly calling. That is the same phrase that's going to be used in, I think, verse 4 or 5 of Hebrews chapter 6. Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So he's talking to save people. This is why biblical theology is important when interpreting scripture. What have we already read in Hebrews that we run into now in chapter 6 that we've already seen in chapter 2 that interprets chapter 6? You see what I'm saying at the beginning of the service? It's important to compare not just Scripture with Scripture, but Hebrews with Hebrews. Now jump to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. I really hope partaker doesn't mean toe in the water, or we're in trouble with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. That's what I was referencing earlier. I thought it was chapter 1 or 2. It's chapter 3. We're made partakers of Christ. I am so glad that as a child of God, I'm not just kind of handling being a partaker of Christ. I'm glad that I am a, a holder. I'm a shareholder. I'm a, I got a seat at the table. I own a part of the whole. And so this is the idea that they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They didn't just handle him and let go of him. Man, they held him. So this is important because it's these people that if they fall away, can't be resaved. So they've been enlightened. 
received illuminating light. They've tasted of the heavenly gift, which means they've received that gift of heaven. They've made partakers, not just handlers, but part owners in the Holy Ghost. Uh, Verse number five back in Hebrews chapter six. And have tasted, we're back to that word again, the good word of God. They've tasted it. They've consumed it. Not like they put it on their mouth and spit it out. And, and the powers of the world to come. So they've tasted the word of God. They've tasted the powers of the world to come. And it's this person who, if in verse 6, they should fall away, it is impossible, which is not there in the t- verse. It's in verse uh, 4. It's impossible for this person to renew them again unto repentance. They cannot get resaved Because... Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, let's put this in the context. If I was writing a letter to a church and I was to say, hey, let me establish some theology. Imagine in the first century, right? You got these churches, they're kind of fledging. They got all these people. Man, people have been added to the church. And then, man, some people are falling away from the church. What do we do? Now, let's say they call Casey, and obviously they didn't. And I write him a letter and I say, hey, listen, these people who fell away, listen. They can't get resaved. There's no need for them to get resaved. If they've tasted of the heavenly gift, they've received the, the word of God, they're partakers of the Holy Ghost. They can't, you can't re-crucify Jesus for them to get saved again. They've not lost what they had is essentially what the text is saying. And so it's very obvious to me as you study through the text what's being said and what's being asserted here. Um, and so it's not acceptable for them to re-crucify Jesus and it's also not possible for them to re-crucify Jesus because there remaineth yet no more sacrifice for sin. It's all already done. Um, look at verse number seven. Now, I, I gave you a bit of a warning in the front end to pay attention to verse number seven, because it feels like we just fell off the wagon onto a completely different wagon. Verse seven, for the earth with drink it, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. Okay, so like we were just talking about like if they're saved and they lose it, now we're whoop, we shifted. Now, don't, don't get lost. There's a natural progression of nature is what the author is saying. The ground receives rain. The ground absorbs rain. The ground produces life and fruit because that's what it should naturally do. Here's the point the author's making. He started it in verse 1, 2, and 3. It's time to move beyond simply receiving water. It's time to absorb these truths. It's time to grasp these truths. I shouldn't have to go back and relay the foundation of repentance that you can't get resaved again or of baptism or laying on of hands. We shouldn't have to go back. If God wills, we're going to move on because the fact of the matter is the ground receives rain and the rain falls on dry ground. The ground absorbs the rain, produces life and produces fruit. But if you're stuck at just taking in, taking in at what time you ought to be teachers, you need that one teach you again uh, the, these basic principles. So that's why it's important not to just rip verses out, but to compare chapter 5 with chapter 4, chapter 6 with chapter 5, because they're building one upon another. So the point being made is that, hey, it is accepted and expected that you would receive these truths and then produce life. That's the natural progression of things. Don't be stuck at square one. Let's lead in. Let's grasp and go on into spiritual maturity. Verse number 8. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected... And is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. He said, listen, and he's already said this. Forgive me, I I have a really hard time with numbers and and references and things. But I think it's chapter 4 where he, uh, now I can't even think about what I was saying because I got caught up on explaining why I couldn't say it. Well, 
Verse number eight, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is burned. Oh, I know what he's saying. He told us already to consider ourselves in, I think it's chapter number four, you know, whether we're in the faith or not. You've got to pay attention and examine yourself. And here he's saying, hey, the natural progression of things is that you should bear fruit. How are you bearing fruit or are you bearing thorns and briars? Christians should be examining ourselves. We are here today and you're receiving water. The water is falling. Lord willing, if I'm doing my job correctly, and if I'm not in the way, if I'm not hindering the Holy Spirit, if I'm not perverting the word of God, if I'm simply faithfully preaching what God says, then the water is falling on you. And you should be absorbing that. But you ought not be here for 30 years and just be absorbing. There ought to be some fruit coming out. That's the natural progression of things, right? Jesus uses the same illustration when he, he uh, tears down or uh, curses the fig tree that brings forth no fruit. That, hey, why cumbereth it the ground? There, there should be something coming out of us. And that should be a concern for us if there's no fruit coming out of the soil of our life. If we're from the very beginning where, man, we, we should be the teachers at Faith Baptist Church. We should be the ones who are helping others learn how to soul win. We should be the ones who are helping others how to go on into spiritual maturity. And we're not. Well, then we ought to consider ourselves because... Good ground receives word and brings fruit, but then there's that ground that brings forth the thorns and so forth. Um, I love verse number nine. Verse number nine kind of sums up the heart of the author in this, in this particular passage as a whole. He says, but beloved, notice that term of endearment, we are persuaded better things of you. That, that sums it all up. We, we expect there to be more coming from your life. We expect there to be fruit coming from your life. We have higher expectations for you. And listen, let me just say that. That is a reasonable thing to expect that a child of God who's faithful in church. Well, let me say this. It's, it's a reasonable thing to expect a lost person when they hear the word of God to get saved. Okay? It's a reasonable expectation for a saved person then to hear the word of God and what is obedient next is baptism. It's a reasonable thing to expect that that happens. Paul said he's begun a good work in you. He'll finish it if you'll let him do it. And it's a reasonable expectation that when someone gets saved, they get baptized, they become a member. It's a reasonable expectation that they begin to contribute in giving and serving and contributing their life to the ministry. It's a reasonable expectation if you're sitting in church for when the preacher preaches on rebellion, if there's rebellion in your heart, we are persuaded of better things for you. It's a reasonable thing as a pastor to expect that God's people respond to preaching. It's a reasonable expectation that you would grow. And that's what the author is saying. It's a reasonable expectation for you to be a part of the process. Um, again, it's not unfair to expect that life should come out of a child of God's life. It's not unfair to expect that there be fruit that remains from a child of God's life. Um, Look what he says, continue verse number nine. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He says, we expect the saved person to act like a saved person. Can I just say, I'm so bothered by this. It's not legalism to expect sanctification from God's people. Some people will shake their fist. Oh, that church is just telling you all the things you can't do. No, 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 no. We, are, we, we expect, we are persuaded of better things for you. Things that accompany salvation. They come along with salvation. It is a natural outpouring of being saved. That's not legalist. That's not lording over God's heritage. That's not abusive that a standard would be set to say, hey, if you're saved and you know it, you ought to be doing these things. You ought to be uh, reaching the world. It's a reasonable thing to expect God's people to behave like God's people, to move into spiritual maturity, to conquer those areas that once conquered you. 
It's a reasonable expectation. If you've been saved, to begin to grow in your areas that you struggle, to, to begin to conquer ground in areas of maybe lust or in bridling of your tongue or seasoning your speech with grace or growing as a handler of the word of God, it is a reasonable expectation of God that you would grow. That, that's not legalism. That's not harsh. That's not, I remember I was speaking to a teenager. This was years ago. I was in Lompoc. And I was talking to one of the young men in our youth group um, who was just struggling. He, was, he, was, he began to really go his own way. He's doing great now. It's not Brother Hunter, by the way. Brother Hunter's doing great as well, but a different guy. And uh, I remember talking to him and said, man, I'm really concerned about what's going on, you know. You seem to be taking steps backwards every single week. You seem to be less faithful to things. And, and he was being sincere. And he said, I'm really struggling, Brother Casey, with the expectations of, of just growing. He was a senior, and, uh, and I don't think so much what he was saying is you're putting expectations on me, but that like he was struggling with, well, my life belongs exclusively to Christ, so I can't take anything back. Like I can't do you know, like what I want if God says no. And the answer is kind of, yeah, like, like it belongs to him. It's a reasonable expectation that you grow in spiritual maturity and that you grow in surrender and that you yield yourselves and your members of instru- as instruments of righteousness, okay? So that's a reasonable thing. Um, verse number 10, and we've got a couple moments. He says, for, now that's important because here's, that, that word for means this. So we have all these, this, these expectations and it's a reasonable expectation because you should move on into spiritual maturity for God is not unrighteous to forget your works and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Here's what he said. Hey, it's a reasonable expectation. The water falls on the ground. It should bring forth fruit. I I am persuaded of greater things for you that you move on to spiritual maturity. And here's why. Because God keeps records. God is seeing everything you do. God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. God is keeping track of your sacrifice and of your tithe and of your missions giving and of your offering and of your, your, your participation. And he's also keeping track of the things we do for our own vain glory. And we learn from the book of Corinthians that those things are going to burn up and we're going to be saved yet so as by fire, but we're going to suffer loss too. Some of the stuff I was convinced I was doing right, I was probably doing wrong and some of that's not going to make it through the fire. And the author here is simply saying, for God is not unrighteous to forget the work, your work and your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister, verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. And that's important. There's a bit of an equality standard here. He's saying, hey, the expectation is that every one of us show the same diligence. Um, And sometimes we can get squirrely with that, right? We can hold other people to a standard we don't hold ourselves to. Like, right, they should be in church, but I don't know, I'm not going to be in church. Like, think about it. How many of you, and I want you to raise your hand. I I, I want you to, well, mm, maybe I'll have you raise your hand. Think about it first. How many of you would be ticked off if you showed up on Wednesday night I wasn't here. And then you found out later I was at a basketball game on Wednesday night. Somebody would be in my office. I would be in my office, right? You'd be ticked off. You'd be like, what are you doing, preacher? You're not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Like, you're supposed to be in the, like, let, let, maybe we got Wednesday night teachers, so maybe let's just go Sunday night. Y'all showed up and nobody was ready to preach. I wasn't here. I was out, you know, hey, it's a long week. I was just tired. I had to go to work tomorrow in the morning, so I just chose not to come. Every one of you would be bothered by that. There would be a reasonable expectation that I would be in my place. Well, let's read the verse again. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. The expectations that fall on me from you should fall on you from you too. 
The expectations I have of you should be the same expectations I have of myself. That we should, there should be an equality as far as our, our, our faithfulness goes. Verse number 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's talking about, now, out of context, it, it, it still works. He just says, hey, there's some people who've gone before you. You should, you know, follow their faith and example. But the Jews lived and died on, on heritage. I mean, they lived and died on their bloodline and lineage, which is what Paul brings, or forget about it. Verse 13. <laughs> Be quiet, Jim. <laughs> All right. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. He says, hey, Abraham received promises from God. And God was faithful to give those promises to Abraham. And Abraham was faithful to obey and receive those promises. You're supposed to follow their example. So again, he's coming right to the the Hebrews and saying, hey, y'all love your heritage. Good. Follow their example of faith. Abraham was given promises. God swore by himself and gave those same promises to Abraham. Verse 14, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. That's the promise. I think we're actually going to have to stop there. I don't want to force through the last couple of verses. We'll maybe back up to verse uh, 13 next week, but we're uh, uh, 10 to the hour, so we'll stop. But uh, I hope you learned something. I don't want to end on just such an awkward note, but uh, I hope that you've learned something. There's a ton there. And uh, the reason it's so hard to find a place to stop is because the letter was meant to be together. It was meant to go line upon line, definition by definition, thought by thought, chapter by chapter, flow by flow. And uh, so I hope that we're learning something at least in that regard. Let's pray and we'll be out.